It's worth knowing what's really going on. This is the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Donald Trump has been indicted in Atlanta. We have so many court dockets to follow, but we haven't really seen anything yet. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution has covered every moment of this historic case. I've been writing about this investigation for two and a half years. Our team is led by reporters Bill Rankin and Tamar Hallerman. Follow our coverage on AJC.com and listen to new in-depth episodes of the award-winning podcast, Breakdown, the Trump Indictment, only from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. You all can learn something new by subscribing to the Atlanta Journal-Constitution's new newsletter called Unapologetically ATL. It's all about the people, the events, and the entertainment happening in Metro Atlanta that Black people might want to know about. So subscribe today at www.ajc.com slash unapologetically ATL. This is Access Atlanta. Every week, we share some of the best places to eat, play, and live out loud in the ATL. And, of course, we go behind the scenes and find the stories that show Atlanta is one of a kind. Welcome to Access Atlanta. I'm your host, Shane Harrison. We've changed the way we do our podcast. That means we're recording it remotely from our homes, but we've also changed what we're talking about in the podcast, since we've always prided ourselves on providing guidance on things to do in and around Atlanta, and because most venues, theaters, and attractions are closed, we're going indoors, and in some cases where it's practical, outdoors to places where it's easy to practice social distancing. April is National Poetry Month. Amanda Gorman's powerful reading at January's presidential inauguration gave a boost to an art form that is often neglected by mainstream culture. At the same time, the New York Times published an inaugural poem by Atlanta's Jericho Brown. To mark National Poetry Month, the AJC's Bo Emerson and Rosalind Bentley have teamed up to take a look at how some Atlanta area poets create their work. And Rosalind Bentley is here to tell us about that story. Welcome. Hey, Shane. Thank you. Happy to be back. So, yeah, poetry, it's something that, you know, it, it, it seems to come in and out of the national consciousness when, you know, moments like the, the inauguration happens, um, you know, it, it, and at other times it, it seems to sort of fade into the background. But uh, there are plenty of people who, you know, that that is their living. That's that's what they do and that's what they create. And uh um, so, you know, maybe we should pay more attention to it. Well, yeah, I mean, there is this whole idea of people think poetry is, you know, I'm going to get a card and that it's a Hallmark card, you know, for a birthday or something like that. Or, you know, they think of the epic poems that they had to read in high school or college, you know, Beowulf and the Iliad and the Odyssey, and maybe they are intimidated by that, or they have to read a poem at a wedding or a funeral or some other event, and that it is something that is turned to um, at a particular moment, not that it is something that really probably should be a part of our everyday lives. And so we spoke with two poets, at least I spoke with two poets, Georgia's poet laureate, Chelsea Rathburn, and Camilla Aisha Moon, who is a professor at Agnes Scott College, beautiful poet, um, Pushcart Prize winner, and her work was also featured recently in the New York Times as part of a series that they did on poets and photographers responding to the seemingly end of, let's say, coronavirus pandemic. I won't say the end of it, but let's say the one year anniversary of it, because that may still be with us. Yeah. And the light at the end of the tunnel, hopefully. Mm -hmm. Exactly. (laughs) Exactly. And I mean, that's a perfect example. You know, it's, it's a great thing for marking milestones like that. Exactly. It's a great way for marking milestones. But then also, as you'll hear in the conversations with Chelsea and with Camilla, it's also a way of processing our, you know, our everyday feelings on something. Mm -hmm. You know, it could be something as simple as a conversation that maybe you have 
over your fence with your neighbor um, that sparks you, you know, about thinking about a larger issue, maybe neighborliness in this time of um, unrest, or maybe it strikes um, uh, some bit of nostalgia in you for maybe you saw your own parents talk with neighbors across, you know, the, you know, across the fence years ago. And so this whole idea of poetry being a way to process um, just everyday moments in our lives, that's what these poets are emphasizing. Right. Yeah. Well, that's a, that's a great thing to keep in mind and, and to, you know, maybe, maybe we should all pay a little more attention to poetry as a way to do that. Since, you know, um, I think too many people don't. Exactly. And as Chelsea said, and she says her husband is also a poet and she says, well, I said this. And he said, no, I said that. But what they said was this whole idea that poetry is not going to sell out an arena. You know, it's probably not going to sell out a huge concert hall or stadium, that that is not necessarily what poetry is meant to do. Poetry is something that is more intimate, Mm. um, can be more one-on-one, and it doesn't have to have the sort of giant audience that we associate with things that are, let's say, quote-unquote, entertaining, that it doesn't have to have that in order for it to be effective and meaningful. Right. Well, that's that's a great thing to keep in mind. And uh, I guess it, we'll, we'll also hear from, from the poets. Uh, we'll, we'll hear some poetry from them as well, right? Absolutely. Um, we got a treat that both Chelsea and Camilla are going to read uh, for us from their work. One, I think, is one poem, I believe, comes from Chelsea's latest book, Still Life with Mother and Knife. And then Camilla is going to read a couple of poems that she wrote last year during the pandemic, and one that also appeared as part of that pandemic remembrance package for the New York Times. Awesome. Well, that's great. So, uh, so we're going to hear uh, the, these poets talk about their work, and we'll also get to hear from their work. And uh, keep in mind, we'll also have a story coming uh, to AJC.com and to our print edition, uh, so you can check that out as well. Um, so thanks so much for bringing the story to us. Well, good morning, Camilla. Hey, thank you for joining us. Thank you, Rosalind. Thanks for having me. Oh, this is such, I think our listeners are going to have such a treat. There's been a lot of talk about the Gorman effect, if you will. Amanda Gorman, uh, the poet, youth poet laureate, reading at the inaugural, and then this seeming pulse or surge in interest in poetry. You know, her um, book of poems has still continue to be number one on Amazon. So I'm wondering if you can talk about that effect a little. Well, um, I think a couple of things are going on. First of all, um, she is quite a light. Um, and I think it's amazing that she was selected um, to share on the national stage um, in that moment that um, was crucial for unity in America. And, um, you know, I teach at Agnes Scott College, and I've noticed that a lot of my students seem most impressed with the fact that she was included because it, it made them feel like, oh, our voices matter, and we're at the table, you know, as Generation Z, they're coming of age, um, they're um, about to launch their lives, and they're about to join the, bu- the public discourse, and so to see a poet their age up there shining like that just meant so much. But I think in general, um, during tough times, and we're certainly in those now, um, 2020, you know, we're still talking about how we're we're not quite over all of the things that happened in 2020. And 
for some of us, 2021 has just been a continuation of those things. There hasn't been a break. You know, we've been in a pandemic. Um, and many of the issues that have sprung from not only from that, but from other wounds and, and threads in, in American culture that we're still working to heal, um, like racism and, and, and um, police brutality and things of that nature. So there's, there's a lot of grief um, in the world right now. Um, and we're looking for sources of joy. We're looking for sources of healing. And um, I think in poetry, we remember our best selves. We, we remember the best of what humanity can be and what we can offer to each other. So I found that people generally turn to poetry during tough times because it's, it's a place to remember the best of who we are and get back there, um, especially when it feels like we've lost our way. Well, let's talk a bit more about that. I know that 2020 was a particularly hard year um, for you um, on top of everything, as you mentioned, the pandemic, the shutdown, remote teaching, uh, George Floyd case, yeah. um, all of that. So can you talk about how poetry helped pull you through or helped you express what you were going through in that moment? Yeah, um, I've always turned to poetry um, for solace and to understand um, others as, as well as myself. Um, it's often that I don't even really know what I feel until I've written it down, um, until I've surrendered to that process of kind of um, looking closely at something um, through art. And because, um, you know, poetry is about observing and it's about interpreting what you see, um, transforming it somehow into something useful, maybe even something beautiful. And um, that was the thing that drew me into it as a young person, as a teenager, and has kept me there all of these years. Um, but last year in particular, in addition to what everyone was broadly dealing with. Um, my mother um, got sick and succumbed to um, pancreatic cancer um, during the early days of the pandemic. And um, that was particularly tough because we had to be separated from her um, in the hospital due to COVID policies um, for a, a great deal of time. Um, and just, just that loss in particular is very, very, very close to my mother. Um, and um, with everything going on, poetry was kind of the rope I held on to, to, to kind of keep it together when, when so much was changing, um, you know, irrevocably. So poetry was that steady thing that I could turn to and, and try to um, make sense out of things that weren't making sense. Um, during that time period. And, but I've always done it. It's, it's the reason why I write, so. Well, one of the poems that you wrote during that time was a poem called uh, Disbelief. And I'm wondering if you might read that for us now. And this poem specifically is about the aftermath of your mother's passing and you trying to come to grips with that and most likely come to grips with that alone since we were you know, in the midst of social distancing and isolation. Absolutely. Um, disbelief. I have all of these lily plants, but not you, nor peace. How they ease my breathing, yet trouble my mind. Symbols of your soaring too high to see or reach. Beauty clanging like bells out of tune. Time's up. Leaves so shiny and perfect they look fake, but a few brown ones, barely clinging and curled in on themselves. Less supple, less everything like me. Let me know they are real. They are real, too real. Lord knows you were the most real one can ever be, and now you're really gone. 
Your need is over, but your giving goes on and on. Heaven is shedding desire's heavy robes, pure devotion to love's pure essence. You, flowered and shiny in what's left of my heart, teaching me to rally. No matter how it may appear, I'm not rootless. Today and tomorrow and the day after that, you remain evergreen and ours, somewhere not here, as my tears land in potted soil, exiled from its mother, earth, like me. Oh, that's really lovely. I'm wondering if you could maybe talk a bit about the line, heaven is shedding desire's heavy robes. I think, um, you know, part of the process is, is, is understanding that you might be channeling something you don't fully understand. I think that's the kind of magic of poetry that can happen as you're writing. But how I think that line reads is it's um, heaven or um, true happiness or this place of contentment is when, yeah, you're no longer desiring things that you, you know, that you, you can't have or that can't be in, you, in, in its full acceptance of, of what is. And this thought of my mother kind of being in that place um, where all, all the burdens are shed, all, all the um, striving and, and, and struggling toward having these things, that's all gone. She's like, she's there now. Um, and, then, uh, and then us on this side, letting her go and accepting that her time here is done. You know, it's like, and, and not wanting to keep her here with us, but to be happy for her for where she's, she is now. Um, but I think that line can be read many different ways. Um, it's, and it's one of those lines that kind of shows up and you, and you just say, thank you when that happens. <laughs> <laughs> well, and we are the better for you letting that channel through, <laughs> put that, <laughs> you know, on the page. Well, talk about, if you can, I mean, your mother meant so much to you. But as a young person um, trying to find your way, um, I'm sure she was supportive of you, but can you talk about your younger journey into finding poetry and allowing that to be a way of expression and ultimately your life's work? Sure. Um, she was very instrumental in, 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 in me becoming a writer. Um, period, because my mother was a very avid reader, voracious reader. Um, we were always surrounded by books, her books in the house. Um, and then she would, um, the, you remember the bookmobiles that used to go to neighborhoods? Um, I hate to say it, but yes, I do. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so I was a bookmobile junkie. I was always there. I think you could get to take out um, up to seven books a week and I always got the full amount every week. Um, so she cultivated that in, in, in me and my sisters, this love of literature um, and culture. Um, I grew up in Nashville, Tennessee and um, we were always at um, one of the universities, whether that was Vanderbilt or Fisk or Tennessee State University at some program, you know, um, as a young girl, I remember going to see Nikki Giovanni read her poetry at Fisk or um, different writers that would come through town or, or artists, a visual artist going to exhibits and things like that. So I kind of grew up in an environment that was rife with those things and then, um, my junior year in high school, I had a poetry teacher, Bill Brown, who was very ecstatic about poetry. And he shared that passion and that love for um, the genre with us. And that kind of lit a, a pilot light in me that hasn't gone out. Um, and, um, you know, I think there was a certain point when I, I was gonna try to do something different. I was gonna, um, I think I mentioned, I, I was interested in journalism. And I was like, well, 
that yeah, that I'll get a job, I'll be able to pay the bills and everything. And um, but I ultimately decided I was like, I I'm I'm a poet, I'm a writer, I'm an English person, and so I ended up going that track, and and that led to teaching, uh, which is actually is a very natural fit and. And when I look back um, on my father's side, I'm from a family of preachers and teachers. So I, I, found, I found the place I was supposed to be. Um, but through it all, that kind of way of seeing the world, I just feel like um, mom always cultivated that. She'd be like, my child, you know, just, but it wasn't like she ever made me feel weird or strange for the questions I'd ask or the observations I'd make. She always did, would encourage it. And um, as I started to follow my path, you know, I think she wanted to be a writer at some point. And she ended up going into social work um, and was a LCSW for many years. Um, but I think when I kind of came to that crossroads, she kind of nudged me to do what I, to, to not um, waver in, in what I wanted to do. You know, she's like, if this is where, where your heart is to go for it, and I'll, I'll forever be grateful for that. And so when you now are working with young poets, mm -hmm. which is what you do there yes. um, at Agnes Scott, how do you help them find their voices? Because I would imagine some of them have written their own poetry, you know, probably from a young age or maybe in high school, but I'm sure you also get students who maybe are a little intimidated by the idea of writing a poem for whatever reason. So can you talk about that? Sure. Um, yeah, I'll get a little bit of everything in class. Um, I think some people have been intimidated um, by poetry because of how it's been taught, um, you know, their experiences in school. Um, taught as part of a test, um, taught as this kind of distant technical thing um, that they had to be knowledgeable about without connecting the fact that poems are about human experiences. <laughs> that someone I sat down and wrote this because they wanted to try to capture some aspect of what it was to be human in the time and space in which they live. And, um, so when they come to my classroom, I lead with that. I lead with, you know, this is human business we're doing here. <laughs> um, this is a big conversation across time and geography and culture that all humans are having um, with each other. And though we're all talking about many of the same things, uh, you know, cause there's nothing new under the sun, you know, we're all talking about love and, and grief and loneliness and joy and, and um, confusion and resilience. Like we're talking all about all the different, all the same kinds of things, but no one's had your experiences um, in your body as you are at this time in history, which is what makes your perspective on these subjects unique. That's what makes your voice necessary and unique. Um, so when we're writing and we're talking about, we're looking at sample poetry, I, I tend to teach um, contemporary poets. Um, there are times when we reach back into like more the classics and the canon, to make connections and many of them do come in with a love for those things. I don't want to give the impression that because you know a poem is older um, or from a certain canon that it's, it's not beloved. It's like we, we, everything's welcome in the room. But I find that when they start to see themselves in the poems that are brought into class um, and can relate and, and, and we pause and we break down. Why did you just say mm, in, re in relation to that line? What hit you? What, what made you feel that? And it's like, well, then we talk about the technique maybe that poet used in that moment to bring that, that feeling alive. Um, but I, yeah, I, I, I'd say this is, this is ours, you know. Um, June Jordan um, and Alice Walker and several poets, Sonia Sanchez, they came up with um, Poetry for the People, one of the first um, big programs, I believe it was out in California 
um, um, you know, letting people know that, you know, po poetry is ours. It's not like this high elite thing that only a few people do, and only a few people can understand. It belongs to all of us. And um, your dialects are welcome. Um, your point of view is welcome. Um, the images that, that resonate for you are welcome. And so, um, you know, I, I tell them that when I realize that poetry connects me to everybody um, all over the world, um, and that that's proven to be true as I've grown as a poet, as I've published, I've connected with strangers in ways that always astound me and amaze me. Um, because like Maya Angelou said, we're more alike than we're unalike. It's true. Um, and when I kind of come from come at it from that angle, then they relax and they're open to what's happening. And then they, they're open to surprising themselves on the page too, because they don't feel self-conscious, you know? Um, and, I, and when I'm talking about poetry terms, I don't, I try, I try to make it as much as part of the body as possible. It's like we're sensory beings. We experience this world through our bodies. So yeah, the technical term for that space on the page is sejura, but you can also think of it as a breath. You took a breath there. You let the person kind of read what came before that breath and then pause before they, they're ready to take in what you're gonna write after that space or that breath on the page. And then it's like, oh, okay. So it's, it's not this distant term. It's like, oh, this is just, you know, me sharing who I am and, and life experiences in a way that might be useful to others. And so. see, I would imagine too that for a reader hearing you talk about this would be useful as well because I think that even if a person doesn't practice poetry isn't their practice in terms of they write it. Some people might be even a bit intimidated in reading some of it, but do those same techniques that you just spoke of work for the person who's just the casual or wants to be more than let's say a casual reader? Oh, absolutely. Um... Yeah, that diving in and 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 realizing that you're you're just reading um, a, a a meditation, a shout, a cry, a complaint from a fellow human being <laughs> on the page, right? Whatever this person has crafted, um, and um, yeah, to 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 it, I guess craft books would help in terms of understanding, but I think intuitively. We, we pick up on things and, and don't even realize that we've picked up on it, you know, as we're reading and why something falls on the page the way it falls. I think of, I think we get the cues um, as readers, but I, but I do, I will say nothing beats hearing a poet read, you know, a live reading. And that's how the form started as an oral art, you know, um, well, telling stories, of course, started oral art, you know, and then reciting poems to each other um, to remember this work, to remember these feelings. Um, so, yeah, I, I, I think so. I, I think um, we need to banish this idea that poetry isn't for all of us. <laughs> you spoke of how it brings us together in expression of maybe an emotion we've all felt or a moment we've all experienced. Um, so I hate to do this to you, but in that vein, um, I think in Metro Atlanta last summer, most of us experienced that tremendous rainstorm that put out, I mean, nobody had power for days. Um, in some instances or for hours in others. And so while many of us were scrambling around, at least I know in our house, we were trying to find candles or, you know, some, some little camping lantern, you wrote a poem. And so I'm wondering if you could talk about that and maybe if we could coax you into reading that poem for us. 
Sure. Um, yeah, that's that storm happened um, right when you know the shutdown was was in effect. Um, all of us were, I think, we're a little bit in shock about it, and and we weren't sure how long it was going to last. And then this storm happens that knocked out the power. Um, my mother had just had a very um, involved, very painful surgery. And um, none of us could go to the hospital to see her. We could only talk to her on the phone for a few minutes a day. And um, so I was already in a lot of pain around that um, and not being able to be there with her through what she was going through. Um, and so when, you know, I had, you know, we have all these devices and things that kind of help us distract us. But when the storm happened, I couldn't run from any of it. I was sitting there with it in the dark. I had to think about all the feelings I was having about everything, about the pandemic, about my mom, about work, about my, you know, my future, what's going to happen. Um, and so, um, as I was sitting there and I did find a candle, I lit it. <laughs> um, I actually was just kind of ruminating and thinking about these things. And then when the power a few hours later did come on, I just, I started to write this down. So this is storm. Night squall raging, black branches batter every window as the sky lashes the city. Without devices, all I can do is shelter in place and wait the latest nightmare out. Find other sources of power as I sit in the dark, save for a candle burning for my mother writhing in an ICU and for the world to make it against all odds. In every sense, I burn in the unseen places, head filling with smoke, each hour lived in a dense haze. Millions weathered this 21st century unholy Passover, homes bereft and singed forever. The unruly rich in charge elect themselves gods, maniacal and merciless. Every warning unheeded, no bona fide mark of protection this time, no choice in the losses reigning almost everywhere. Candlelight for two is a date. I faintly remember those. Candlelight alone is a seance. Forgive me, my dearly departed, for crying out so often, for still needing you so damn much. Camilla Aisha Moon, thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Rosalind. This was lovely. Chelsea Rathburn, welcome. Thank you for joining us today. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Well, as we said, Chelsea is our poet laureate of Georgia, and you assumed that post in 2019. Is that correct? Yeah, that's right. Okay. And so, you know, when we think of that, the poet laureate, it, I mean, it is a lovely title. Um, but can you talk about a little bit about the way you saw, let's say the position? Um, it is quite an honor to have one's work recognized in that way, but there also comes with it some measure of responsibility. So can you talk about a little bit about the way you view how you've done this work and particularly at a point of being a pandemic uh, when maybe you haven't been able to do as many in-person things. So can you talk about that role um, of trying to, for some people, maybe a lot, demystify the role that poetry um, can play in our lives? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I, I get asked very frequently, you know, so, so what is a poet laureate? You know, what exactly mm -hmm. does a poet laureate do? Um, and it, it really varies from state to state. Uh, some cities have, have laureate positions. I think primarily that a poet laureate serves as an ambassador for poetry. Mm -hmm. A lot of people, and I, 
I teach, I speak frequently. Um, you know, I, I, I work with, with uh, college students as, as my day job. I teach at Mercer University. Um, and even my, even my students who come into creative writing classes are often mystified by poetry. They're, they claim that they hate it or that they're scared of it or that, quote, they just don't get it, you know? And uh, it's a, so I see a, a big part of the laureate's role is just communicating that, that poetry is, is for everyone or it can be for everyone. Um, you know, that poetry is not this um, dead art that we, um, we only encounter in, in high school um, and then you know, stay away from or need to hide from. Um, I, I think many times, uh, many times po poetry readers approach poems you know, thinking that there is some secret locked inside. And if they don't understand it on the first read, you know, it means that there's something wrong with them. Um, and so I, I, I try, I try um, you know, when I, when I speak, um, I, I try to just communicate that, uh, you know, poetry, poetry is a living art. Um, poetry is, is vast. Uh, you know, there are many, many kinds of poems, many kinds of poets. And, uh, you know, you don't, you don't have to love every poem that you encounter. Um, but, but I think that uh, the more, the more poetry that, that you read, the more that you open yourself up to reading poems here and there, uh, you may, you may discover that there are real pleasures. Um, I, for, for me, poetry speaks to, to, um, let me see, <laughs> I'm blanking here. Um, you know, Po poetry tries to express complexities, um, things that we cannot easily express in our day-to-day -day lives. And I, I think that, you know, it, it, there's no coincidence that often when, when people go looking for poems, people who don't normally read poetry, uh, people often go looking for, for poems in times of uh, great uncertainty or great emotion. I'm thinking, uh, of course, of, of weddings and funerals. Uh, you know, uh, when, when we fall in love, you know, I think often there's, uh, what, what do people do? They, they, you know, go to Hallmark and, and look, for, uh, look for a card that, that somehow, you know, encapsulates these feelings. Uh, but I think people also, you know, are, are compelled when, when they are feeling great emotion or great confusion, you know, to, to sit down, pick up, either pick up a poem to read or or sit down and, and try to write it out, try to write those feelings out. Uh, there's something about the compression of a poem. You know, a poem is this, this small object that attempts to contain so much feeling. And I, I think that there's something, you know, as, as readers, when, when we need to understand the world and uh, when or having trouble making sense of things, you know, we can pick up poems and find, if, if not answers, we can find other people struggling to make sense of the same things. You do read your own work. And so I'm wondering if we could get you to read a piece um, from your latest book, and maybe you could tell us a little bit about the poem you're about to read to us, which is an introduction to art history. So introduction to art history, Fountain 1917. In the half dark we sat, most of us half awake as Miss Bagwell rocked on thin heels, clicking through slides on an ancient projector, tracing our progress from the walls of caves through fertile and faceless Venus of Willendorf to the ancient Greeks, golden boys and gods. Having signed up for the gentle impressionists whose prints hung on our kitchen calendar, I suffered through the Rococo and David. I was suspicious of the French romantics, tumult and restraint, the exaggerated tension in those bodies splayed across battlegrounds and rafts, and all the women bare-chested for no apparent reason. But by the spring, I decided I loved it all, even what I hadn't liked especially the way Miss Bagwell nearly leaped out of her shoes at her favorite slides, her hands flying, breathless as she tried to tell us everything she knew before the bell. 
even when I couldn't see what she saw in a square of flat black paint or a porcelain urinal. I wanted to, wanted to be without embarrassment or irony, transformed by what I loved. So I think a lot about, about you know, being a teenager and how, uh, how embarrassing everything was. And, uh, you know, and how, how much I, I hid, my friends and I hid behind, you know, ironic statements. And, and, uh, and, and that was really something when I, when I think back, you know, to the, the sitting in the dark in those, those lectures, uh, you know, watching, watching this, um, she's, she's, she's probably my age now, but she seemed, seemed <laughs> much older. Um, <laughs> you know, this teacher who was just so passionate um, it was, it was, it was really moving, you know, really, I think, uh, shaped me. I paused because I actually teared up. So I had to, <laughs> as you read that, so I had to, well, this idea of, of discovery in that moment, you know, that you can look back on where the world just wasn't the same after, you know mm-hmm. what I mean? And a sense of, of possibility. You've painted this this visual for us of you in that room and doing that, and you know what you were going through, trying to cope with motherhood and trying to heal yourself. I'm wondering if you could you read the swimmer to that mm-hmm. poem? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so this is this is a poem that's not directly about the painting. You know, the the first poem that I wrote. I began essentially describing Delacroix's Medea. Yeah. Uh, but now this is, this is one that is in conversation instead with, with one of those sketches. So, and uh, you can see that, you know, the poem is basically going to move between describing the sketch, thinking about the sketch, and then also thinking about my own living child, uh, making movements that remind me of, of the, the child in one of the sketches. This is called The Swimmer. In the drawings, it takes a while for Delacroix to settle on the children's resignation as their mother marches them through a grotto towards death. On canvas, their bodies will be limp, even their squirms submissive, but in the center of one sketch, the larger child, he must be five or six, not much older than my daughter, has thrown one arm over Medea's shoulder as though he'd fight her off or plead for love. I think of that gesture, how fierce and futile, as I stand shoulder deep in pool water days before my daughter learns to swim. Her formal lessons forgotten, she grips my shoulder the way the sketched boy clutches the mother who holds the knife, as if I want to drown her so she has to kill me first. She's thrashing wild against the cage of my arms, holding on as she pushes away, whimpering, now screaming. The boy's arm is slender and straining, muscled as a swimmer's, and I can't decide if my daughter's right not to trust me, I who once cast her for my body, who threaten and cajole, who would in fact dunk her before she's ready. Soon she'll learn to trust her body's buoyancy and slide beneath the surface unafraid, but now she claws at me, pushing me under, as though my arms weren't keeping her afloat. She, she really did learn to swim about two or three days later. Okay. <laughs> I know that those, those were some rough lessons. <laughs> but still, we, in this, I think, we see from, you know, from high, uh, fine art to, you know, how that inspired you to just this moment. You could see... Um, that journey from mm-hmm. here, are these sketches, hundreds of years old, to this moment in the pool, you know, with your child. And I think um, for a lot of people, that probably helps them as they look at a poem um, to see that they too can be connected in some way, mm-hmm. you know, 
there's got to be some moment or some words in there that connect them directly to um, that experience. So I know you hate this phrase and I'm going to, we're going to probably wind up here, but I know that one of the things we talked about was, you know, uh, this whole idea when people love to say things like poetry is dead. So, (laughs) So, you know, for people who don't read that, I mean, maybe they felt like it got, you know, uh, you know, uh, you know, chest compression or something, you know, with the inaugural address. But tell me what you, how you respond to that when people say that. Right. Well, you know, my, my husband and I talked about this a lot, how he, I, I think he's the one who came up with this analogy, but, uh, you know, poetry, we, we don't really need to, uh, you know, to sell out football stadiums for poetry readings. You know, we, we don't need, poet, poets don't need to, uh, you know, to sell $10,000 or 10,000 tickets, uh, right, to an, to an event. Um, you know, poetry is, is never going to be, I think, as, uh, as popular as, say, as football, right, or as, um, as, as rock music or, or uh, you know, Hollywood films, right? I mean, it is, again, you know, it is, it is a, a largely private art form, um, an intimate art form. And, um, and so therefore, you know, I don't, I don't think that poetry um, needs to be hugely popular, you know, in the sense, in the sense of, of uh, you know, every, everybody's lining up outside the, the bookstore waiting, you know, waiting for the next, uh, their, the, the next poetry title to be released. Um, but <laughs> I, I just, you know, I, I don't know. I've always taken issue with these, these sort of think pieces about, oh, poetry's dead. Because think that, you know, no, it's not. Sure, it's not as popular maybe as, as uh, novels, right? But it's, it's um, people have always read poetry. You know, people have always read poems. People always have always turned to poems in times of need. And uh, even if they don't think of themselves as, as uh, avid poetry readers, they still seek poems out, you know, at, at, at times of, uh, of, of great, I think, emotional complexity. As we were saying earlier, you know, it's, uh, it, I, I, I think poetry has always been read, poetry will always be read, uh, but it, it also is a living art form. You know, poetry, po- the poet's concerns evolve. Um, poems, you know, poetry, the style of poems evolve, uh, but I think there will always be a readership. It may not be as big a readership as, uh, you know, uh, who's somebody popular, <laughs> I think. Stephen King. <laughs> yeah, Stephen King. Yeah, thanks. I was thinking like, who's somebody on TikTok or-, or uh, Oh, know. okay. <laughs> what, what, are, what are these things? My, my daughter gets on YouTube. There's some, some YouTube personality that she's really interested in. And uh, yeah, I, you know, I, if I, if I set up a YouTube channel <laughs> reading, I'm, I'm not going to have the, uh, you know, the, the, the views that uh, some of these, these, uh, you know, YouTube personalities have. Right. Um, but I, I still, you know, I, I, I don't think poetry is going anywhere. I, you know, I, I don't think we need to worry about the, the health of the art form um, because it always has been delivering um, solace to people in times of need it's been delivering um, not not only solace, right? That that implies that poetry is only only good in times of darkness. I mean, it, it, poetry also delivers joy, right? Poetry delivers it, it delivers what I think whatever you need. I think you can find a poem that addresses addresses that. There's nothing normal about our new normal, but AJC.com is the same trusted source you've always had, and we have just as much great content, if not more. That's why each week I'll highlight my personal picks for the best things to do, see, and experience, and the stories are easy to find on AJC.com. Three years ago, the Atlanta Opera brought a lavish production of Carmen, the beloved Bizet Opera, to a crowded audience at the Cobb Energy Performing Arts Center. This spring, the opera company will do it again with more than a few adjustments. 
The three-hour opera has been rewritten to fit pandemic precautions, jettisoning a production stacked with chorus members, singers, and a full orchestra to fit a socially distanced, COVID-safe opera performed in a tent in the venue's parking lot. The new opera, dubbed the Three Penny Carmen, runs concurrently with a slimmed-down version of Bertolt Brecht's The Three Penny Opera during the company's Molly Blank Big Tent series starting April 15th. Find out more about these productions on the Access Atlanta page at AJC.com. During the pandemic, Atlantans have discovered or rediscovered nearby state parks where they can get out of the house, breathe fresh air, exercise, have safe family time, and just unwind. There are 63 state parks and historic sites, several of which, like Sweetwater Creek State Park, Red Top Mountain State Park, and Chattahoochee Bend State Park, are within a 20 to 45 minute drive from Atlanta. Others, such as Don Carter State Park, Fort Yargo State Park, Hard Labor Creek State Park, Cloudland Canyon State Park, and Amicalola Falls State Park, are a bit further out, but still within an hour or so drive depending on where you live in the metro area. Freelance writer Mary Welch explores the options in a story that you'll find on AJC.com. Jason Aldean will return to the stage for a couple of live shows at Bonnaroo Farm in Manchester, Tennessee this spring. The Macon native will perform for an audience for the first time in more than a year on May 14th and 15th, as a limited number of fans will be allowed. Tickets will be sold in groups of socially distanced four-person pods, with tickets starting at $99 per pod. Melissa Ruggieri has all the details on the Atlanta Music Scene blog at AJC.com. The AJC's dining team continues to explore some of the best in takeout with the Atlanta Orders In feature, which you'll find in print in the Living section many weekdays. One of the places they recently visited is Local Expedition Wood-Fired Grill. After moving to Atlanta 15 years ago, Danny Kim and his wife Diana ran a franchised pizza parlor. Once they sold it, they decided to focus on their successful catering business, never thinking they'd care to own a restaurant again. Yet, the Kems found that once people tried their smoked chicken, healthy sides, and Mediterranean fare, they were hooked. They wanted to know where they could find more. That prompted the couple to open their globally eclectic local expedition wood-fired grill in Alpharetta in 2016, followed by a second store in Sandy Springs in early 2020. Read more about Local Expedition and catch up on all the places the team has visited on the Atlanta Restaurant Scene blog at AJC.com. To get the AJC delivered or to subscribe to the e-paper, go to AJC.com slash subscribe. For more things to do in and around Atlanta, go to AJC.com. Our senior editor is Nicole Smith. Podcast edited by Bria Felician. Music by Bo Emerson and Billy Guen, And I'm your host, Shane Harrison. Join us next week for more Access Atlanta. Thank you.